0: Good morning guys. I'm a new member, so if you haven't met me, my name's Heather. Uh, we're going to be reading from Mark 35 sorry, nope. Mark 4:35 through 41. So if you want to go ahead and turn there. Reading over this uh, passage this week has been a huge blessing, so I just pray that it is the same for you guys today. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, "Let us go across to the other side." And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Heather. Hey, it's good to be with you this morning. A couple of things I'm happy to report from the uh, baptistry slash hot tub that uh, Lila was baptized by her dad, and so that's reason to celebrate. And it's hard at seven, eight years old to all these eyes on you to not be nervous, so we're glad she uh, is in there. Now she's a member of, of our church, and so it's good to Good to celebrate that. It's also really good to be back up here with you opening God's word this morning. Uh, I'm really thankful for the leaders in the church that have stepped in these past few weeks and and preached for me. Thankful for you men and for your wives and the way you are all serving the church and leading in the church. I got to leave town a couple weeks ago and had absolutely no anxiety or apprehension about it, knowing that you all would be served and cared for. And so, brothers and sisters, Thank you again so much. Uh, We're going to continue to walk through the Gospel of Mark this morning. Uh, In this text this morning, we see a little bit of a shift in Jesus' ministry. Uh, The last several weeks, we've seen Jesus teaching to a large crowd. And today, we're going to see Jesus attempting to pull away from the crowd. And we're going to see some really intimate moments that Jesus has with his disciples. And true to form the disciples completely missed the point. Uh, They completely just fail to understand what Jesus is trying to show them. The danger, though, is very real and present, not just for the disciples in Jesus' day. That is a very real and present danger even for us today. I don't want to spoil the ending of the story, but Heather already read it, so we can blame her. Uh, Verse 41, we see the disciples question among themselves, like, Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Who is this man that even the wind and the sea, they obey him. They do what he says. So we have to ask ourselves the same question this morning. Who is Jesus to me? And we have to arrive at an answer. And whatever answer we arrive at has drastic and dramatic implications on how we live today. And it has eternal ramifications for our souls. So the question we need to wrestle with this morning that I want to place in front of you is this. Who is Jesus to you? Let's pray and we're going to jump in. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be gracious and merciful this morning to reveal yourselves to us. Lord, I pray for salvation to come. Lord, that we would see you high and lifted up and exalted risen King Jesus. Lord, we need you. Lord, we love you. Lord, help us to trust you. Lord, do a work in us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. It says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him uh, took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling up. So I grew up in the Texas part of New Mexico. Um, the, the part of New Mexico I grew up in was like Midland and Odessa got married and had a baby. Uh, Super weird because we're like 100 miles away from any body of water, and so many people had boats. It was, yeah, it was really weird. Uh, anyways, my in laws have this lake house that we go to from time to time, and it's fun and all that, but then in a moment, everything can change. West Texas weather is super unpredictable. All of a sudden, it can be like 180. And you're dying of heat exhaustion, and then you like, go outside, and the wind is shifted from the north, and the temperature drops to like negative two. And you're like, how did this happen? I was sweating yesterday, and now I'm getting hypothermia. All of a sudden, it'll get super cold and windy. And if you're out on the lake, it is a mad dash to get off the water before lightning strikes, and your boat gets flipped over or something. Just like in our text today, the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus is teaching from, is notorious for this type of uh, unpredictability. It's a few thousand feet below sea level. It's nestled between some, some mountains, and so if the wind starts blowing, it'll shoot down in there and start swirling around violently. And it can cause like these miniature hurricanes. And so Jesus, having taught the crowds all day, he tells the disciples, hey, let's go. Let's get away from all these people. Let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they take off, and as they're en route across the lake, a windstorm starts, and it starts to threaten their lives. It starts to threaten to sink their boat, and look what takes place. Verse 38, it says, But he, being Jesus, was in the stern, or the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Just put yourself in this boat for, ex- for a second. It's rocking back and forth. All right, this is really childish and silly, but I'm going to go for it. Um, if any of you are, like, wanting to write a musical, this would be a pretty cool Bible text to use because you could have the disciples be like, don't rock the boat, rock the boat. But anyways, um, <laughs> don't judge me. Anyways, so the disciples are in there. The boat's rocking. Uh, It's about to tip over, it's filling up with water, and Jesus is asleep. Anybody in here a good sleeper, spiritual gift? um, Some of you are good at sleeping through the sermon. Uh, I see you up here. Uh, This text, Jesus is asleep, and this text is a vivid reminder that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is in fact fully human. He's had a full day of ministry. He's been teaching a large crowd, healing people, being around people all day. So why is he sleeping? Because Jesus is a person with actual person-like needs, and one of those needs is to rest. There's this assumption that Jesus went after ministry like some kind of a zealot like, let's just go until we can't go anymore. That's not at all what we see in the scriptures, in the life of Jesus. In chapter 6, we see him telling his disciples, hey, let's go over here and rest for a little bit. And previously, in our text to Mark, we see Jesus teaching about the Sabbath and the necessity for Sabbath rest. So this is a little bit of an aside. Uh, Step away from here just for a second. Culturally speaking, West Texas culturally speaking, We're guilty of one of two things. We're guilty of being too busy or too lazy. Some of us never, ever stop working long enough to spend time with the Lord or our family. Some of us don't do much of anything but scroll social media. Both of those things are contrary to what Christ has called us to. Work was created before the fall of man, and so we have been given a mandate to work as a reflection of what we believe to be true about Christ. When we don't work, or we don't honor the Lord in our work, we are perverting from the beginning what God has called good, and thus robbing ourselves of the blessing of obeying God in our jobs. We're hurting our gospel witnesses with our coworkers. We're not fulfilling the great commission mandate to make disciples. When we overwork, it communicates that we don't trust God to provide for us. But Christ invites us to rest in him. Christ invites us to dependency in him. Christ invites us to work unto the Lord and not for man or not for ourselves even. Man, what if you started viewing your job as like a ministry opportunity instead of a means to an end? What would change in your life and in your mind and in your job if you viewed your work as mission? It might change some of you that are discontent with your work. That might change your hearts about about your contentment. Following the example of Jesus, back to the text, following the example of Jesus, if Jesus Christ needs to take a rest, so do we. In fact, the Heavenly Father at creation actually commanded rest. So we have Jesus sleeping in this boat. It's filling up with water. His disciples show up and offer him not like Hey, Jesus, wake up. Uh, Like, you know, what you do with your kids. Hey, it's time to wake up now. The boat's filling up with water. We're all going to die. Come on, get up. Um, No, it's like a sharp rebuke. I bet they're like shaking him. Teacher, Jesus, wake up. Don't you care, they say. Don't you care that we are dying? And look at what unfolds. Verse 39 and he, being Jesus, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus wakes up. With a word, he calms the storm. The text says he rebukes the wind. Essentially, Jesus wakes up and gives the wind of a, like a shh. And it stops. He tells the sea, be still or stop it. And there was a great calm or a a perfect calm. If you're into like wakeboarding and stuff, like this is your dream scenario. Glassy water and stillness all around you in an instant. Verse 40, Jesus said to them, why are you still so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus looks at them. Jesus gently prods them. Guys, what's the deal? After all you've seen, after all you've heard, after all you've seen me do over these last several days and months, after seeing me cast out demons, after seeing me heal sickness, why are you still faithless? And look at how the disciples respond. Verse 41. And they were filled with great fear, I imagine so, and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They are fear-stricken. They do not understand what they've just seen and experienced. And in our text next week, it's going to get even crazier for these 12 men. And so their question Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man? That's the question we have to wrestle with ourselves. Who then is this Jesus guy? He has power over the demonic as we've seen. He has power over sickness. He has power even now over nature. Man, I love this story. This is one of my all-time favorite stories. And Partly it's because of what happens in our text next week. They're juxtaposition between the disciples of Jesus in this story and the demons in the story next week. Unfortunately, though, this particular story has been misused and misapplied countless times, not only by like prosperity gospel preachers and progressive pastors looking to tickle your ears, but also by well intentioned men of the faith. So there's grace for both camps. Also, my grandmother misuses this text on Facebook when she says, like, don't tell God how big your storm is. Tell the storm how big your God is. Like, that's not helpful, Granny. Um, But here's, here's what happens a lot with this text. It is common, and it's an easy mistake to make when you look at a text like this and see Jesus calming the storm, And the inferences you draw from this story can be like this. I've heard multiple pastors say stuff like this. And Jesus can calm the storms in your life, man. Jesus can soften the blow of financial problems in your life. Jesus can calm the storms in your marriage. Jesus can still the storms of anxiety and mental health in your life. Jesus can still the storm of whatever problem real or imagined you are having. The apostles in this boat... After Jesus calms the storm, aren't like standing around like, hmm. Jesus, can you fix my marriage? Jesus, can you you fix my financial problems? Three seconds ago, they thought they were all going to drown. Many of these guys, keep in mind, were fishermen, so they're well acquainted with boats and how to use boats and how to navigate storms. But this is pushing their knowledge to its limits. When Jesus calms the storm, their responses aren't like, Jesus, fix the other stuff in my life, too. That'd be great. Their response is like, what just happened? I am so afraid of this guy. So let me ask you this, Christians in the room. Is it true that Jesus can help you with your financial problems? Somebody holler back. All right, cool. Uh... Is it true that Jesus can heal a broken marriage and heal wounds from divorce? Is it true that Jesus can heal your sicknesses and diseases if he so chooses? Is it true Jesus can help us with our problems? Emphatically, yes. Just use scriptures that say those things. We know Jesus can and does help us with our finances because God is our provider and scripture tells us he supplies us with everything we need. We know that Jesus wants to reconcile broken relationships because he himself reconciled our broken relationship before God by becoming death for us and dying on the cross. And now as Christians, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4. We know that Jesus can and does heal miraculously, as we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, and we see throughout the ministry of the disciples in the book of Acts and within the church even today. The issue is that if that is what we get from this text, if that is only what we get from this text, we are not fully experiencing who Christ is and what he wants from our lives. This text reminds us of both the nature and character of Jesus as a member of the Trinity, as a member of the Godhead, as the Son of God, God himself. For those of you in here that like theology and church history, looking at you, Dev, uh, let me give you a word. Theology, we have this word. It's called hypostasis or the hypostatic union. Uh, There was a man from Egypt in the 4th century named Athanasius who was one of the early church fathers he was key in developing this idea, this biblical idea of the Trinity, specifically as it pertained to Jesus Christ and his divinity. Because during his time, there was a lot of uh, controversy surrounding this and a lot of contradictory views about who Jesus is and what he did, and is Jesus really God? So the church fathers got together, and they meticulously combed through the scriptures to contend for biblical truth. This is how we get the creeds and the councils. So while these guys aren't inerrant, they are definitely trustworthy. So in the Athanasian Creed, we see the church fathers recognizing and affirming what's called the hypostatic union. It says this, He, being Jesus, is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time, completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards to divinity, less than the Father as regards to humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. (laughs) He is... I'm not done yet. Hang on. Save your applause. He is... One, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both uh, a rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. There you go. All right, so to summarize all of this, Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. He is both perfectly divine and perfectly human, having two complete and distinct natures at once. So as we've established, Jesus and his humanity, he needs to rest. In other parts of the Gospels we'll see Jesus get hungry and eat. We will see Jesus have righteous anger and we will see Jesus cry and show real human emotions. At the end of the four Gospels we will see Jesus die. Jesus dies on the cross He is human, and his humanity is on display here. But so is his divinity. Jesus in his divinity is divinely sovereign even in this text. Don't miss this crucial detail of the story. It was Jesus who led them into that storm. God orchestrated an event in the lives of the apostles to increase their faith. God wanted them to remain wholly dependent on the one in whom they should have already trusted. This story isn't about Jesus getting us through our troubled lives. He certainly can do that. This story is about an all-powerful and all-knowing God, the one who is worthy of our praise, who is worthy of our admiration. And hear me say this, he is worthy of our trust in spite of your circumstances. This storm was not an accident. Jesus was not caught off guard. Man, it would be super easy for us to like kick around the disciples. But before we do this, can I ask you a question? Do you see yourself in them? Man, I do. When life gets hard and I feel like I'm like caught in the grips of the world and I'm not getting the results of life that I feel like I'm entitled to, I would rather complain and grumble. And oftentimes I complain and grumble to anybody but the Lord. I know I'm not alone. Man, it is oftentimes so much easier to spew unbelief than to practice faithfulness. We are a lot like the disciples, with one key advantage. We know how the story ends. We know that Jesus would die on the cross. We know that Jesus would die on the cross taking on the punishment of sin and death on behalf of those who would place their faith and trust in him. We know that he would prove victorious once and for all by rising from the grave. We know in our heads that he is worthy of our trust in spite of our circumstances. And yet, oftentimes in our hearts, we miss it, just like Christ's disciples. We know that he has taken all of our sin on himself, but oftentimes we still act like we're afraid and we have no faith. But let me submit this to you, church. Trials and difficulties in our lives are opportunities for a number of things for the believers. They are opportunities for the Lord to strengthen our faith. Sometimes, and oftentimes, trials and struggles in our life are often divinely appointed so that Christ can give us what we need the most. Our greatest need is not an easy and carefree existence, despite what our Western American minds want to tell us. Our happiness is not our greatest need. Our greatest need is for Christ himself. So when we're faced with trials, man, we get to count it as a blessing because it is a chance to lean into faith and trust and dependency on the Lord who endured trials and punishment on our behalf already for the joy that was set before him in redeeming sinful humanity back to himself. Trials and tribulations are also an opportunity to give God glory in how we endure. James 1 says that the testing of our faith produces perseverance, and perseverance produces a steadfastness, and steadfastness uh, um, produces, I'm sorry, perseverance produces faith, and then steadfastness or steadiness or an unwavering confidence in Christ, who then will perfect our faith, Through our trust and obedience to Him and Him alone. And man, that's the goal of our faith a faith that is perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. When we persevere to the end, we get Jesus. Thank you. Perhaps you're listening to this thinking this sounds mean for God who is supposed to be all good and all loving to allow his children to suffer. I understand where you're coming from but I also think it's a little short-sighted of us to land there. Let me tell you why. God is not distant in our suffering. May I remind you of what the disciples said to him in verse 38. They accused Jesus of not caring about them. We're guilty of accusing God of the exact same thing. It's so comforting to me that in their accusation of Jesus being indifferent or hard hearted towards them or not caring about them, that Jesus never ever rebuked them for their thoughtless words. This is the same Jesus who would forgive Peter's denial and curses of him the night he was arrested. This is the same Jesus who forgives the disciples after they all flee and leave him in the garden alone to be arrested. This is the same Jesus who steps out of heavenly perfection and lives among us and endures the cross instead of us. And also who endures the cross because of us. It's not mean. Because God himself has suffered too in order to bring the things to completion of his good and perfect plan for you. And what would it look like For you to go through this life and never have pain or struggle and miss Jesus in the process. That wouldn't be a win for you because your soul is condemned to hell. That wouldn't be a win for you because you were condemned before a holy and just God. And listen, that is honestly what we all deserve. Because of our sin, we deserve death. We deserve condemnation, but because of the cross, we know that we are more loved than we could ever imagine or even realize in this world. The goal of Christianity is not an easy living. It's not health, wealth, or prosperity in the way that some people would say it is. The goal of Christianity is faith and dependency in Christ and Christ alone. The story ends by leaving this question hanging. Who is Jesus? Each one of us has to give an answer to that question. One day, we will all stand before God and have to answer that question. Who is Jesus to me? The answer is this. He is either Lord and Savior of your life, or he's nothing. For the disciples, Jesus is greater by far than what they ever imagined. He controls nature. He casts out demons. He heals sicknesses. For us, the same must be true. Jesus is greater than anything we could ever hope for because he has done something we can't do. He's defeated sin and death and made reconciliation with God possible by means of his death and resurrection. What we see in this counter uh, encounter is grace for the disciples' unbelief. But with that grace comes the nudge towards faith. Jesus is inviting you to repent of your unbelief. Jesus is inviting you to turn from your unbelief and trust in Christ as the risen Savior. Who is this Jesus to you? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you that because of it, you are bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Lord, I'm just heavy hearted this morning. Lord, I know that there are many different types of struggles in this room this morning. Lord, would you be near the brokenhearted this morning? Lord, may we see that, yes, in fact, you do care and you do love us and you love us so much that you came to die for us. So may we walk in the freedom of being called sons and daughters of the King. Lord, I pray that you heal wounds this morning. Lord, I pray that you would... Comfort the afflicted, Lord, that you would save the crushed spirits. But, Lord, ultimately, I'd ask that you would draw us into faith and dependency on you. Lord, we need you. We need your grace. We need your goodness. We need your nearness. Lord, I pray that you would move and work in here in these next few moments. It's in your name we pray. Amen.